day. So good to see you all gathered here with us. Happy Father's Day to all of our dads. Uh, More on on that toward the end of our service, but dads, we love you. So glad to see you here this morning. Let me draw your attention to just a handful of things by way of announcements. Kind of today is the last day. If you want to sign up for one of the Guatemala shirts, we're selling those uh, as a fundraiser. Um, $25 on those. Sign-up sheets are on the back tables. Uh, if you were intending to get one of those, several of those even, uh, today is kind of the final day to sign up for that. So if you have any questions about that, let us know. This coming Friday, 6 o'clock, over in the Rock, kind of a family movie night for every, anybody that uh, has like kids, kind of want to bring the kids, a little family movie night. That's Friday at 6. Next Sunday, kind of immediately following the worship time, we will enter into our quarterly business meeting kind of here at the end of June. Uh, one big uh, kind of note for that is we will be voting to, uh, to approve the 2023-2024 church budget. Those have been emailed out to you. And then on the tables as you make your way out the door, you can grab a copy of that proposed budget. Here's what we're asking, that obviously you take a look at that, be here next Sunday to approve that with us. If you have questions about anything you see there, um, just let me know, let one of the elders know, let somebody on the finance team know, and we will be glad to answer those questions, kind of point you in the right direction. So those are out and available for you. Well guys, it's so good as always to to see you uh, as we gather on the Lord's Day. We so desperately need these moments together, and I'm glad that you have committed to be here and to be a part of this day with us. Let me pray, and we'll begin our time of worship together this morning. God in heaven, we love and we thank you for the gathering of your people on this day. God, we thank you that we have a reason to gather. God, we thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, as your people come and as they gather in this building, God, as they come to hear from you, as they come to worship you, God, would you be a help to your people this day? God, would you draw near? Would you comfort? Would you instruct? Father, would you give grace and mercy? Would you bring correction? God, edify, build up, sanctify your people this day. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to sing. God, to lift our voices with the song and to sing the the song of the redeemed. God, to make your praise known. To declare your worth. God, to remind one another in these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, God, to remind one another of what's true. God, would you sanctify us even as we sing your word this day. God, as we we hear from your word, as we meditate upon your word, as we hear the word preached, oh God, help us to see. Help us to see, God, what is true. Help us to believe it. Help us to live it out. God, would you, for these moments together, would you cause the noise and the clamor of the world around us to cease? God, would you quiet our hearts and our minds and help us to fix our eyes 
on our great and glorious and sovereign King Jesus. We ask and pray all these things in his great name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church family. Let's stand as we open in worship.
church family, this next song that we're about to sing is a new one. Um, and it's called Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. Um, and the artist of this song, Matt Papa and Matt Boswell, uh, they, this idea comes from scripture of Christ being a sure and steady anchor. Um, it's found in Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, and so starting in verse 19, it says, We have this hope as an anchor for our souls, sure and steadfast, which reaches inside behind the curtain, where Jesus Christ, our forerunner, entered in on our behalf. So let's continue in worship as we remember and we reflect on this truth that Christ is our sure and steady anchor.
Our reading this morning will come from Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in the first verse. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may overflow still more and more, in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may discover the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, the glory of and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the palace guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brothers and sisters trusting in the Lord because imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking that they are causing me distress in my imprisonment. But what does this mean then? that only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this, I rejoice. But not only that, I also will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my <clears throat> deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live in the flesh, that will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you 
all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your pride in Christ Jesus may be abundant because of me, my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and this too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer on his behalf, experiencing the same conflict which you now saw in me, and now I hear to be in me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the truthfulness of your word, for the encouragement that it gives us, and for how you teach us day by day to walk with you, so that whether we remain here in the flesh or we are taken away, to be with you forever, that we are to occupy, we are to be joyful, we are to show forth the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in and through our lives and as we reach out into the lives of our community and those that we worship with. Father, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to come this morning in this assembly to come together and to enjoy the fellowship of other Christian believers, to be encouraged that there are others who are struggling, that there are others who are striving to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that all our struggles, that all our strivings are undergirded by your precious Holy Spirit and that you will not leave us and that you will not uh, leave us in a state where we have no help. We thank you that no matter if we're tested by you or we are enticed by the devil, that you have made a way for us and that your angels and your Holy Spirit does hover over us and does take care of us and sees us through and, and we reach a state of maturity in you and following you in this life. And so now we would ask especially that you would anoint uh, the one who is coming to bring us the message. We pray for Matt today. We pray that the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit would so abound in his word that we would receive it as a word direct from you. And Father, we pray that our hearts would be willing to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Church family, let's stand as we continue in worship.
temptation comes my way. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Church family, this month we are memorizing together a verse from Scripture from the book of Psalm, Psalm chapter 94, verse 19. It's reminding us of a, a glorious and eternal, a timeless and comforting reality uh, that when, not if, but when we are laden, uh, heavy laden with cares and fears and anxieties and concerns and when it is all too much for us, when we do not know what to do, maybe we don't know how to pray uh, in the midst of that, we find time and time and time again that God is near and that He is actively moving to console us, to help us, to comfort us in the midst of all that we endure. And so I, I hope that in these recent weeks that this verse from Psalm 94 has been a comfort, a balm, a salve unto your weary soul. Let's say this together. Again this morning, there's a, a beauty in hearing one another kind of say this across this room. And as you say it and as you hear it together, know that uh, the brothers and sisters in the pew with you, they are leading you on, spurring you on, pointing you toward Christ. And we are saying together that we believe these things to be true. So let's repeat this together. When the cares of my heart are many, Your consolations cheer my soul. Psalm 94, 19. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, God is called the Father of mercies, and the God of all comforts. If you remember back to John chapter 14, Jesus is in the upper room with His disciples. He's just told them He's about to leave them. They are troubled. And so He begins to remind them that when I leave you, I am sending to you the Helper, the, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And He will be with you. He will never leave you. He will remind you, teach you, instruct you, guide you, and most certainly be a help and a comfort when the cares 
of our hearts are many. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we find that God draws near to His people. That He never leaves them. He never forsakes them. And when, not if, but when those cares overwhelm us, when sorrows like sea billows roll, what do we find, saints? We find that the indwelling person and presence of the Holy Spirit reminds us of what's true. It reminds us, He reminds us of God's faithfulness. He reminds us of Scripture, maybe that we've not heard in ages, but comes to our mind in that moment to serve its comforting purpose in us. Saints, I don't know all that you're going through this morning, but here's what I do know. That if it be hard, troublesome, perplexing, and many, for every anxiety that you have, there is a consolation from the Lord that serves to cheer your soul. And so remember these things, beloved. Lean upon not your own understanding, but these things, for they are eternally and gloriously true for us, the people of God. In just a moment, uh, we will hear from Philippians chapter 1, from Pastor Matthew, one of the, the beauties of being a part of a church where there are multiple men who may preach God's Word is that we get to hear that preaching of the Word from those gifted brothers. And so in a minute, Matthew is going to come to open up in Philippians chapter 1 and that familiar refrain of verse 6 that he who began the work will bring it to completion. Let that consolation, dear saint, cheer your soul this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we have sung what is true, God, as we have admonished one another with these spiritual songs as we have directed our gaze toward your greatness your glory the promises that you have made in your word god the promises of what is not only true now but what is true for the future god we we meditate on those we bring those now into this next act of worship which is the preaching of your word and God, I pray that in the preaching of Your Word that we would find the confidence that is not rooted in ourselves, but a confidence that is rooted in You. You, the One. You are never troubled by fears and anxieties and worries. But God, You always come near to Your troubled people. God, when sin or temptation or tragedy or sorrow, when it strikes, God, it doesn't mess up Your plan and Your will for our lives. So God, we fix our eyes on You. We hold fast to the anchor. The sure and steady anchor of our souls. God, we remember that you never quit anything. That you always finish what you start. God, even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. You cannot deny yourself. So Lord, I pray 
that as we come to this pivotal moment of our gathering, the preaching of Your Word, Lord God, I pray that that Matthew would speak with clarity, boldness, conviction, and from truth. God, that we, Your people, would respond rightly to Your Word. And that God, You would receive all praise and glory by the preaching of Your Word, our response to Your Word. God, You're worthy. We love You. We thank You. We ask and pray it all. In Christ's great name, Amen. Alrighty, so as has been said, go to Philippians 1. We are going to look at one verse today, but to kind of catch up of why we are here a few weeks ago, the students uh, went to camp, went to uh, Panama City Beach, and we studied the book of James while we were there, and looked at the book of James, and looked at the, uh, the reality of God's Word instructing in that very short letter of genuine faith, genuine, um, authentic Christianity, and how that instruction there is practical, and those practical things that James gives us uh, display and reveal a genuine faith. And we observe that the genuine seed of faith exudes itself in living. And so faith is something spiritual, it's something that is within that displays itself and reveals itself, grows into, into a true, consistent, and unmuddled living. And so as, as we were looking at genuine faith and, and looking at how it is something that is unforced and not manufactured, but it is something God gives and God grows, we looked at the life of Joseph as an example. And as I was preparing Joseph and studying, not preparing Joseph, but, but preparing to preach on Joseph and, and preparing to, uh, to looking at his life, I was struck with something. I was struck with how Joseph is not the primary character in that portion of Scripture. It's such a large portion of Genesis. It's such a, it's such a wordy part of the story, and, and it, it hit me that as I have taught on it, I have studied Joseph, and have, have preached on the life of Joseph, that, that I, I approached him with the assumption that, that he is important. And he's important perhaps because of his, his character, that he had solid character throughout his life, and that in, in his place that God rose him up and put him there to preserve Israel. And so in this, in this assumption, uh, I got something, something wrong. Joseph was a man of character. Joseph was uh, at the right place at the right time. God put him there and, and is, is somebody that is an example for us, but... In that, perhaps we give him too much credit. In that God is the primary person, the primary character, the primary actor in the life of Joseph. That in looking at Joseph is just simply a, a means of ethics to extrapolate and then add into our lives by his example. It diminishes the reality of God's sovereignty in Joseph's life. Why did why, why did why was Joseph, why did he have to be there? Like, couldn't God have just not sent seven years of prosperity and seven years of famine? Wasn't it in his control to not do that? And so Joseph wasn't even necessary. He wasn't necessary at all. God could have preserved his people, preserved the family of Jacob without Joseph in this story. 
In fact, Genesis 41 uh, talks about two places as, as Joseph is interpreting the dream of Pharaoh. It says that in uh, verse 28, there it is, not, okay, it's, I'm slow, sorry. It is, as I told you, Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then down a little more in doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. God is in control. God is in complete control of Israel, complete control of Joseph. God is in complete control of what is happening. And it's not that God has to to get him down there and work through all these things to orchestrate these things because Joseph's got to be there. Joseph's got to be there to to make sure food is stored away and that the famine is averted and people are preserved. But God has fixed this. God has shown this to you. God was doing this. He was bringing this about to reveal his character, reveal his mercy, reveal his goodness, to show himself to us and to them at that time. That the person that Joseph's about is God. It reveals God and his character and points forward to God's provision in his son. That it points forward again and again and again past Joseph throughout the the entirety of the Old Testament points forward to Christ, the Messiah, the Lord who is coming. And so as as I, I studied and looked at this, thought that I just foolishly have misinterpreted Joseph and have in in an effort to to look and and pull things out of have just diminished the reality of what God was doing in Joseph and in that time and the reality of what he does throughout scripture that Joseph is a special character but what we see in Joseph is that he trusts God even in horrible circumstances He trusts God, and God is faithful. God protects, provides, takes care of him, and does it in a way that is inexplicable outside of God involved in his life. And it's the same story. The same thing we see in in what God did in Joseph is the same for us, that the foundational question for us all, for all people, is who will we trust in? Who is the Lord? Will we trust in ourselves? Will we trust in something else? Will we trust in something we can manufacture and bring about? Or is God the Lord that we will trust our lives to Him? So it's the same question in Joseph. It's the same question throughout. And it's the same question that gets us to, to Philippians 1.6. Because we can, look, we can look at instructions and points and things, but what is most important is that we would see a glimpse of God. We would see God. We would see who He is. We would see His character. We would see how He has proven Himself year after year, generation after generation, in life after life after life, as He has been faithful, He has been good, He has been merciful, and therefore God does not change. He is the same God He was for Joseph as He is for you and me. He is faithful, He is just, He is good, He is kind, and He is right. And so we're going to look at this one verse, and it's a tremendous verse. It's a wonderful verse in, in uh, Philippians 1. And so let's read it real quick, and then we will talk about uh, some of it and, and uh, draw two points from it. And so 
Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, I am certain of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So a little background on this verse of Philippians. Paul shows up in Philippi and shows up here in Acts 16. is the first place that Philippi, Philippi occurs in his second missionary journey. And it is a place that is a prominent place in the world. If we go to Acts 16, uh, Luke says that from there to Philippi, he departs and goes to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in that city some days. And so in this place, he shows up and the church that is born is born in a place of prayer. And it's pretty incredible as as Paul and Silas come to this place, and they come to this place of prayer, and there is a few ladies, one being Lydia, who becomes a prominent member within this church and a prominent supporter of Paul throughout his ministry, that as they are at a place gathered together to pray and to seek God, Paul comes. The Lord brings Paul there, and Paul shares with them. Paul tells them of who Christ is, of what he has just done, and what he has done in his life. And these people are converted. They believe in Christ. They believe in him and trust him. And God plants a church here in this place. And so they stay a few days and they're here and they're going around in, in Philippi and there's this, this uh, slave girl who annoys Paul <laughs> and, and ends up, uh, the Lord heals her and casts the demon out of her and her owners get real mad. And they start a riot, and everybody's mad at, at Paul and Silas, and beat him, and they throw them in prison to protect them. It's pretty crazy. They're, the crowd's trying to destroy them, and they go to prison for protection. So anyways, they, they're in prison, and they, they're in this place, and they are about midnight as they are singing, as they are worshiping, as they are thankful to the Lord to be in prison, that God shows up. God shows up empowered in an earthquake and, and um, opens all of the doors and removes all of the shackles. So everything is gone. They're, everyone in the prison is free. And the jailer wakes up. He apparently was, uh, was asleep and napping, not doing his duty. Anyways, so he, is, he wakes up and uh, Paul, Silas, yell at him, don't. Uh, we're all here, we've not run away, don't do anything drastic. And at this point, this jailer is humbled, perhaps by what he has heard, what he has heard in the testimony, what he has seen in the city, what he has heard from them as they are singing. And he comes to them and says that, that what must I do to be saved? What must I do? And the response, of course, is to repent, to believe in Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And so the jailer and his family come to Christ. They are converted in this time and what they have seen, what they have heard, the witness of Paul and Silas. And so we have, we have the church. This is the beginning of the church in Philippi. This is the beginning of this letter he is writing, Paul is writing with Timothy to this place uh, that he is writing from another prison later on. Perhaps Rome could be Ephesus, Caesarea, more than likely, Rome, he's writing to the Philippians from another prison in joy, rejoicing in God for the gift of this church and for what God has done there through them and 
to, to wrestle with them, to encourage them, to protect the unity of the fellowship, to protect the unity of the church that was fractured and conflicts that were brewing within, within the people. And so we see in this letter, this letter that Paul is writing, we see this thankfulness for these people. These, this thankfulness for these people and for what God has done within them and what God has used them to do in their community and in the world around them. As if we read the end of the letter, the world that, that the witness of their, their faithfulness and their goodness has spread around and that people see and recognize what God has done within them. And so, back to 1.6, uh, we see that Paul is convinced says that he is convinced that these people, uh, that what God has done will happen. And so this word convinced, it, it refers to a precision, a firmness, a convincing of one's mind, that firmly settled state that this is real and this is active. So it's something, it's a, it's a reality that has occurred that continues on that is true and settled. And he is convinced that, that what God has begun will be done. And so this convincing that he, is, that he has is not about the people. It's not about that, that these people are, are believers, that they are genuine and they're right in that. That is surely an aspect. I think we can, we can draw that from this whole chapter that we've looked at and, and uh, what, what has been said, but specifically the place where he, his, his fidelity and his convincing is in is what God is going to do. That God is faithful. So Paul is convinced that God is faithful to do what he has promised to do. That God's will and God's ways will be accomplished and what he has started, he will bring about. And why this is so pivotal, why this is so important is because of the conflict in the church. Let's look at two places in uh, chapter 2 and chapter 4 and read two places, these first two, three verses of these chapters. Talk about some of this conflict going on. And so follow with me. Uh, Philippians 2, it'll be up on the screen or Bible in front of you. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Two more chapters, chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat, <laughs> I haven't read this out loud, uh, you would, <laughs> Euodia. Let's go with that. And entreat, <laughs> that word, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So two places, two specific places where where he, he points in chapter 2 to Christ in the next seven verses, points to the nature of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, as being the reference and the foundation of the unity that he is telling them they should have. That because God is unified, because Christ is unified in his love and his work of grace, thus the people should be. 
Because there certainly is encouragement in Christ. There is certainly comfort from His love. There is certainly participation in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. There is certainly affection and sympathy. Thus, have the mind of Christ within. And then specifically, these names that I could not pronounce this morning, uh, these two ladies, these leading ladies within the fellowship who are in conflict with each other, he tells them, make amends. Encourage them to agree in the Lord. Encourage these women who have labored side by side with Paul in the gospel to agree together, to make amends with each other and come to an agreement. And so there are these conflicts within the church, within Philippi, are creating division that is, that is fracturing the fellowship, but more importantly, is displaying and witnessing improperly and falsely to who God is and what the gospel is. In that the church displays who God is. It displays the nature and character of God. And how we join together represents the unity in the Trinity and represents the completeness of the gospel. That the gospel of Christ comes into our lives and changes us. It changes who we are, transforms our lives, and that transformation is night and day to where the fellowship of the people is totally different because of Christ. Not because we look the same, not because we share things or we're indebted to one another, but because of what Christ has done for us. Because He has revealed the reality that we have nothing on our own. We have nothing to claim. We have nothing to say that we are of more worth and value than anyone else because it is because of our sin, it is because of our rebellion against God that every one of us is within and naturally placed within that Christ came to die for. We cannot fix our sin. We cannot repair the broken relationship, but Christ alone is the atonement and the gift of grace for our sin to bring about restoration before the Father that we can know Him and we can have any semblance of hope in life. It is God in Christ providing for us thus. We have no claim over one another. We are unified in our dependence and desperate need of Christ and the reality of His great and abundant, extravagant love for us that has joined us together. And so, two things. Let's pull two things out of this verse. That was all introduction. So, God begins the work of salvation. God begins it. He says that he is confident. Paul says he is confident of this. That he who began the good work, the one who began it, who created it, who started it, God who initiated it will bring it to completion. That first of all, salvation is a work of God. It is something God has done. We looked at the light, we, we walked through all of that with Joseph and with Paul in Acts 16 because it exudes the sovereign work of God to bring Paul into this place that Lydia and the other ladies are there in this place of prayer on this day. And he goes and shares, and they are born again by the grace of Christ. And then this, this slave girl who comes and says, These guys know the way of, to, to God, the way to the kingdom of heaven, that God is there. God is bringing all these things about as he heals and casts this demon out of this young lady. Then the, the city that is up in arms and tries to kill Paul and Silas as they then are in jail, 
then God comes again, visits and, and sends them all out, preserves the life of the jailer, brings all of his family to Christ, to faith in him. God has done all of this. Salvation is a work of God. It is God by a sovereign grace coming into our lives and calling us to trust in him. It is, we see it here in this whole letter and in the providence of the people in Philippi that God brings them to faith in him. God will begin it. God will finish it. He who began a good work. Paul is certain. Paul is certain because it's not based on himself. The work of grace in the life of the Philippians is not based on Paul's ability, his eloquence. It's not based on any natural ability in the people of Philippi. It is completely God. Thus, he can have confidence that what God has begun, he will continue it. That regardless, even though these people, even though these people are fighting and arguing and they're obvious disagreements and issues, that God is faithful to bring about what he has started. He is faithful and will restore. It's through God's Word as God uses Paul to this end. But God will bring about what He has promised. God is ultimately responsible. He is ultimately responsible in the Gospel to bring about the restoration of people. God protects His church. God has created, He has promised, and He will provide. He will take care of His people just as He has called His people. So as God has begun with these people, He has begun to bring about their change to the ultimate end of them being saved. And part of why we we built up to this place is because I want you to be able to recognize God's hand in in. Philippi, can you see it in your life? Do you see the hand of God in your life? As He has brought you to a place of conversion, of faith in Him, do you see as God put the pieces into place to bring you to the place of hearing the Gospel of Christ and your eyes being opened and you being brought to a place of dependence and faith in Christ Jesus and Him alone? Do you see God doing this in your life? Can you see His hand as we see it in Paul and in the people of the church of the Philippians? Do you recognize what God has done in your life? Do you see the common grace, the common goodness, the preservation that He has not judged you yet, that you are still alive? Do you see God's hand of mercy and goodness, of sovereign mercy in your life, and has that in that recognition, in that recognition of His patience, of His kindness, of His goodness, of His sovereignty, has that brought you to a place of faith? To trust Him. To trust that He is good and that He has sent His Son to save you from your sin, from yourself, and from death eternal. Have you seen him lead you and be at work in your life? So God is responsible for our conversion, but also that conversion brings about a change of life. 
And what I, what I mean is that as the book of James makes clear, and as Paul makes clear in this letter, that grace does not mean that it doesn't change what we do. That grace means that our lives are different. Thus, we see a lot of sweat in Paul's life. We see a lot of effort. That as Christ calls him and saves him, that Paul then gets to work. He gets to work in what God has called him to do. And he, he puts a lot forward in that. That what, what God has called the Philippian church who does not exclude effort. It doesn't mean that they then just trust Jesus and live complacently. Live in an invapid luxury that everything's fine, it'll all work out. That in God's sovereign work of bringing about conversion and then producing the outcome, that in Him being trustworthy to be faithful to bring us to the conclusion, in Him does not entail that we do nothing. It doesn't entail to the Philippians that they then are not active. But he makes clear that they, that we, they are active and press forward to know God, as Paul writes, that, that God's instruction to the church is instruction to bring about repentance. That we must repent. We must have a change of heart. We must have a change of life that continues. That continues in all of life. It's not a once and done, but that our lives we continue to come and abide in Christ and be brought to that place of, 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 uh, of sanctification that we are, we are purified slowly and more and more as we spend time with Him, as we are filled with His Word, and as we are filled with His truth, and we submit ourselves to the Spirit that God would have His way with us and that God would lead and guide and direct us. Look in chapter 3 of Philippians as we have 12 through 16, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And so he's saying that he has not finished the race. He hasn't concluded his walk of faith, but he presses on towards Christ. This is Paul. This is Paul who says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I cannot echo that. I would hope, but that's a hard one. This is the guy who is sitting in prison multiple times. We see in, in chapter 3, he lists the things uh, that, have, that have occurred to him, that he has been beaten for, that he has been shipwrecked for, that he has struggled with, that he has been stoned and left to dead with rocks. And, and this, these things that have occurred to him, he has not been perfected. He continues to walk by faith, trusting in Christ. Thus, as he presses forward, it is because of what God has begun in him. If God has begun within you salvation, if he has saved you by his grace, press forward in Christ. 
press forward, continue on, continue to be mindful of what he has done and who he is and what is coming, what is occurring. And so number two, God's call to grace in Christ will be completed by him. The last part of chapter of, of verse six is that what he has begun, he will complete. It will be finished. It will not be left undone. It will be complete in Christ. That what He has created, what He has brought about, it has a conclusion. There is an end. And that end is preserved by God. And so, this the word used here is, is important. It is, it is important in recognizing that the conclusion is the source of what we depend upon. In other words, the, the conclusion is primary within this clause in this verse. Not the beginning. The beginning is important, but is dependent upon the conclusion. In that, what is most important, what, what founds our faith is the, the narrative of the gospel. What God has done. Not experience. Our experience is important. It is incredible that we get to experience the grace of Christ and God at work within our lives. But first and foremost, it is the person of Christ that should ground our faith. It is the person of Christ that Christ has come and that He has been resurrected and that He will come again. The reality historically and in real life of what Christ has done, who He is, and that He is existent now and awaiting His return that certain reality should inform our hope and onward focus into the future. That He will be back. He may not tarry this afternoon. He may come back. It may be a thousand years. We don't know. But He will return just as certainly as He came. Just as certainly as we point to all of what Scripture has said, He will return and be back. Thus, as His return is certain and imminent, the work of God to save His people, you, me, His church, is dependent upon Him, not you, not me. Gosh, that, sh that should be such an encouragement to us. That should be such a boon for our hope. That it is Christ. It is God who will do it, not me. It is God who will complete the work of salvation. God will bring it about. Go to Psalm 138.8. I'm going to wait on you for this one because hang on to this one. The Lord, Yahweh, will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. God's steadfast love will endure. He will work what He has promised. What He has promised, what He has begun, He will complete. It will occur because He has promised and because He's God. He's an authority. Nothing can thwart, nothing can slow Him, nothing, nothing at all. He will bring about what He has promised he will finish what he has started. And he will not forsake the work of his hands. He will do it. 
God is on the hook for the endurance of the church, not us. Yes, we are active and we must be active, but ultimately it depends upon him. Ultimately, it depends upon God. Therefore, as James 1.12 says, blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Thus, because of the reality that Christ will return and what he has begun, he will complete, we can remain steadfast. We can remain steadfast under trial, under pressure, under difficulty, under suffering, in prosperity, in abundance, and in little. Because of Christ. Because He is faithful. Because He will not forsake His people. He will not forsake His own. And He can accomplish what He has promised. So friend, remember Remember what He has done. Remember who He is. And remember that what He has begun will be completed in the day of Christ Jesus. That that language at the very end of this verse is specifically a call back to the many Old Testament prophecies of the day of the Lord that Paul inserts the visible Lord now, Christ Jesus, in, in this, uh, this expression of the day when God comes back in justice. The day He comes back and He rights all the wrongs. He calls all people to account. And as we see in Christ, He calls His people to be with Him. That the day of the Lord when Jesus comes back is when it's over. When, if we read further in chapter 2 of Philippians, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back, when this occurs, that everyone under compulsion or willingness will bow before Christ the Lord as the King of all creation. As the Lord of all. This day of the Lord is coming Therefore, this promise, what He is beginning, what He is doing, will be completed in this day. Remember. Remember what He has done. Recall the work of conversion and grace. And then look forward to what He is doing and what what is culminating in this world. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the, the destruction and and what human voices around us are saying. It doesn't matter what the talking heads are pontificating that this is what is occurring, and this is what is wrong, and this is what must be fixed. God's promises are certain. His church will not go away. He is in authority. May we trust in Him rather than in what we see and hear and what we experience. May we trust in Him, in His Word, and press forward to what certain promise He has given us. That He has. He has been faithful for countless generations. He has been faithful for the saints of old. He has been witnessed again and again and again and has done miraculous things in continuation throughout history. We have a firm foundation in Christ. Let us not turn away from it. Let us not turn away from Him. And so today's Father's Day. So a, a final word, a concluding word on this day in that as, as Scripture gives us instruction um, 
for, for fathers, I don't think there is a better one in that what we see here in Christ as God is faithful to us. He is faithful to His people. He is faithful to the end. Thus, He has placed us fathers in a family to be faithful to them as Christ has been faithful to us. If anything is needed in this world, it is that fathers we remain faithful. We remain faithful to care for our families, to serve them, not to expect to be served. To serve and to lay our lives down for our families as Christ has laid His life down for us. Be faithful to what God has done in giving you the good gift of a family. Be faithful to what God has given and recognizing that all good things come down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The goodness of the family God has given you, it is, it is good. Rejoice in God that the good that He has given you and be faithful as He has been faithful to you. Faithful to serve, faithful to love, faithful to be there, faithful to give them to Christ, to the Lord, that He would be glorified in and through you and that you would serve your family as Christ has served you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you have, you have been faithful to us. You've been faithful in the cross of Christ that as it was mysterious to generations and generations of what you would do, who the, the seed of Eve that would crush the head of the serpent, who this would be, that God, this mystery you made clear in your son Jesus. That you made clear that He is the Lord, He is the Son, and that you made it even vividly clear in that His work, His service, His fulfillment of your law was complete and accepted in the resurrection. That we have hope in life, we have hope in death, we have hope no matter what, because Christ is alive. Because He brought His sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, in the heavenly throne room, and laid down that sacrifice so that we, Your people, could be forgiven and healed for eternity. So that for eternity, we can know You and be made right before You. God, thank You. And I ask that God this morning, that Lord, You would speak, Lord, into our hearts from Your Word. That God, we would, we would wrestle with what you say, with what you have done in generations before us, and that God, you would temper faith, you would temper the faith of your people and grow the faith of your people, and that you would bring some to faith. That God, you would provide clarity to recognize your hand or the absence of your hand. And that God, we truly would be confident and firm in your promise and that, God, we would be able to rejoice and be thankful as Paul is thankful for these people in Philippi. Thankful for the fellowship that you have brought together and the people that you have brought together by your grace and by your call of Christ. God, would you lead us and guide us here these next few minutes? Amen.